You're listening to The Crunch with Cam Slater. Right here on RCR, Reality Check Radio. With me now is Don Brash, former leader of the National Party, former leader of the ACT Party, former governor of the Reserve Bank and an expert on GST and taxation. And we're going to talk, Don, about all of this rush and this current election campaign for several of the parties to outbid each other, talking about creating exemptions for food and fruit and vegetables, et cetera, uh, on GST. And you're aghast at this idea, aren't you? That's right. I think it's a crazy idea. Why do you think it's crazy? Well, let me go back a little bit. Um, I have had the background that you mentioned. The other thing which may be relevant is that when the fourth Labour government was in power, Roger Douglas, Minister of Finance, he asked me to chair the committee which would design the GST. It was way back in 85. Mm. And he said, look, uh, I've heard horror stories from the UK where small companies have been crucified by the impact of implementing a VAT, which is the same as the GST, essentially. And he said, I want you to design a tax which minimizes the compliance costs for small businesses. He said, big businesses can handle any complexity. They've computerized systems. He said, but small businesses can't. So design a tax which minimizes compliance costs for small businesses. And, of course, it took no genius to work out at all that – the best way of doing that is having one rate of GST applying to everything. And uh, that's the system New Zealand adopted. It was adopted here in New Zealand. Uh, I think the only other country in the world which has a clean GST system like we have in New Zealand is Singapore, predictably. Singapore tends to do most things which are fairly rational. Um, but other countries have enormous compliance costs of, of having GST not on some preferred issues. So I guess my background is uh, I start from a bias in favour of having no exemptions at all. And I think if you ask the average business person at any level of business, they would strongly support no exceptions, no exemptions at all. So uh, that's where my starting point is. Um, If you say let's let's, uh, exempt fruit and vegetables from GST, yeah, literally have difficulty of deciding what is a fruit and vegetable. Now that sounds pretty straightforward, but what about uh, retailers who sell pineapple in small squares? Is that fresh fruit or is it processed fruit? Yeah, are you going to exempt processed fruit, or or where do you draw the boundary? So that those boundary issues, which are, are very difficult to start with. Well, <clears throat> I was living in Australia when they implemented GST in Australia. And uh, there was all sorts of crazy scenarios that were concocted because they did exempt uh, food and fruit and vegetables and those sorts of things. And you had these debates where they said, well, you can go and buy a chicken, you know, uh, uh, a frozen chicken uh, from the supermarket that doesn't have GST on it. But if you if the supermarket provided cooked chickens, like every supermarket does in Australia and New Zealand, then that did attract GST, but then there was a further debate on which components of the was the chicken, uh, you know, GST exempt, but it was the power and the labour and the packaging and all of those sorts of things that made that a cooked chicken. Uh, 
they had to do the GST components on those. It was just there was ludicrous example. There was another example um, that was used. If you've got uh, GST off lettuce, does that mean it's off the lettuce that's in a Big Mac and McDonald's, or because it's now shredded, it's no longer the lettuce; it's now a shredded lettuce. And so, do we have to do GST on the labour for shredding it and then packaging and then putting it into the? And it seems ludicrous to try and go down that path. Yes, and and uh, that's a major reason for having only a single rate of GST and having no exemptions on where it applies. I mean, some countries have a nightmare. You mentioned Australia. Even worse is India. India has four different rates of GST and a whole range of exemptions as well. And frankly, it is a nightmare. Uh, compliance costs of, of catching this tax, collecting this tax is, is very, very high. So... On, on compliance costs alone, exempting a small range of things is, is a serious mistake. Uh, and, and that's just uh, one of the arguments against it. There are other arguments, of course, which are also very powerful. If you exempt fruit and vegetables, why not other kinds of foods? And as you point out, some political parties are saying exempt all food. Well, if all food, what about doctors' bills? What about mm. books? What about children's footwear? Uh, what about um, children's clothing, indeed? I mean, a whole range of stuff. Dentists, dentists to have. Um, the argument can be made quite strongly they should be exempt too. Well, I mean, you, you never, never stops. And really just is this a ploy maybe from New Zealand first, from the Labour Party, from the Maori Party, to maybe enrich some lobbyists? Because it seems to me that the lobbyists are the ones who, who gain everything. And the end user, the the customer that this is supposed to help, sort of their needs get pushed by the wayside. That that's right. I mean, it, it's a it's a yeah. I suspect it's also a benefit to computer companies which want to computerize the whole system in some way. But um, I mean, it, it's 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 a nonsense. The other point, which I think important for those political parties on the left which are arguing for this, the main beneficiaries of this exemption would be those on high incomes. Uh, why? Because it's people who are high incomes who spend a lot of uh, money on, for example, pineapple and, and high quality, high expensive, high expense, highly priced fruit and vegetables. If you're on low income, you're buying potatoes and bananas mm. and not much too much else. So in terms of dollar benefit, more goes to middle and high income people that you're not especially trying to, trying to help than it does to low income people. You give away a huge chunk of revenue, and it's mostly going to people that you know have no particular interest in trying to help. Now, you've consulted on GST to several countries, haven't you? Uh, yes. Um, two in particular. Um, uh, the Bahamas was one country. Uh, Bahamas is an interesting case because uh, they basically have no income tax. Right. And most of their tax revenue was collected from very high import duties. And they were very keen to join the World Trade Organization. And the World Trade Organization said you can't join with those kind of very, very high import duties. Mm. So they're looking around for a new kind of tax uh, without introducing income tax. So they suggested they should have a uh, evaluated tax or a GST. And uh, uh, at the time, I think New Zealand was very keen to get 
uh, United Nations vote from the Bahamas in support of our membership of the Security Council. Yeah. And, and John Key bumped into the Prime Minister of the Bahamas at the Commonwealth Heads of Government meeting and said, look, we can help you with implementing your GST. So uh, I and one other guy were sent off to the Bahamas. And uh, it sounds like a terrible luck. Uh, sorry, having to being sent off to the Bahamas, it's it's not like Alcatraz, is it? Though? <laughs> no, quite right. Uh, I uh, went three times in total, and the other guy went only once because I had no other commitments very strongly at the time in New Zealand. Hmm. But the 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 big thing we did for for the Bahamas was to say no exemptions, and I think that's what they did. Yeah. About once a year, I get a, an email from a, a guy who runs a supermarket and says, thank heavens you uh, persuaded the government to have no exemptions because otherwise it would be a nightmare. So the, these political parties, New Zealand First, the Maori Party, and it's rumoured the Labour Party is going to push for GST coming off fruit and vegetables or basic foods. Often in politics, you see grand promises that are going to deliver X, Y, and Z to the voter. And I I consider this to be one of those where there's these grand promises that it's going to make food more affordable, it's going to make uh, it easier for budgeting, it's going to a whole lot of reasons. But these aren't supported by any evidence, are they, that if you do exempt fruit and vegetables, that it lowers the price? In your experience, both as a Reserve Bank governor and also as a you know, consultant, have you ever seen any evidence that lowering taxes on these sorts of things leads to, A, an increase in consumption of those things, because theoretically we're trying to signal it's a good thing to happen, or B, it's a benefit to the end user, or does it just enrich the supermarket chains? No, I can't honestly say I've, I've been able to comment on that, Cam, uh, because basically in both the case of the Bahamas and the other country I was involved in was Saudi Arabia, mm. in both cases I was involved before the tax was put in place. Yeah. I haven't been back to see what the situation is uh, now. But, but you're quite right. Uh, simply removing a tax doesn't guarantee that every consumer or all consumers are going to get the benefit of that reduction of tax. Some of the, of the benefit will go to supermarkets, I've got no doubt. Mm. So, but but as I say, quite apart from where the supermarkets captured, if most of the benefit in terms of dollars is captured by people higher up the income stream, uh, higher up the income uh, distribution, uh, you're not actually helping the people you supposedly are trying to help. Well, I mean, that's the that's the key thing, isn't it? We often hear. I mean, we had the electricity reforms that were going to lower. Um, electricity prices. We haven't seen any benefits of that. We had the super city, which was supposedly going to get a, give us more cost-effective outcomes on the basis of rates in Auckland. We haven't seen that. We've seen uh, this government propose splitting the health system into a race-based system and on one side and everybody else on the other, and we're not seeing any benefits from it. Is this a problem? perennial problem of over-promising and under-delivering politicians in this GST uh, promise is just another one of those boondoggles to, to get some votes and then we'll see what happens. I think it's particularly the situation now we have MMP, Cam. Mm. Uh, in the old days when you had two main parties, uh, one party was going to have to deliver on their promises. Uh, with MMP, 
small parties can promise what they like. Sounds very attractive. They get some votes. But of course, by definition, they're in coalition with another party, a larger party. And that party says, look, I'm sorry, uh, I won't mention names. But, well, no, I'm sorry, Winston, we can't exempt food because if we did that, uh, we'd have to find the revenue somewhere else. And that's a large chunk of revenue we haven't got. The budget's already in deficit, so we can't do it. So the, the danger in MMP in this situation is that small parties can, in fact, make potentially extravagant promises, uh, knowing full well that they won't actually have to deliver on them because the larger party won't, won't go along with them. So uh, I guess the degree of responsibility which different parties have varies, obviously. Mm. Some of the larger parties who seem almost certain to be in, in government if there's a change of government, like ACT, for example, ACT can't afford to make too many outrageous promises because they're likely to be a significant component in the centre-right party, mm. a centre-right government. But if you're a very small party uh, and just scratching for 5%, you can afford to make extravagant promises, fairly confident that no one will call you to account for not delivering them. But isn't that a danger too now that it's rumoured that Labour is going to come out with it? I mean, they've denied it, but not particularly convincingly they've denied it. Um, and I guess it remains to be seen. But isn't that a danger now if you've got a large party saying, yes, we'll do that, and there are some smaller component, potentially component parties of a coalition that are saying the same thing, that we could end up with the dog's breakfast of GST? Uh, yes, but uh, it's, it's as I understand what Labour is alleged to be promising, they're talking about exempting fruit and vegetables. Right. Uh, the smaller party is going much beyond that, but I suspect that Labour understands full well that if they give away GST revenue from fruit and vegetables, they've got to find it somewhere else because they're running a large budget deficit and uh, they simply can't afford to do the kind of silly things that some of the smaller parties on the left are advocating. Do you think potentially that this is causing internal problems for Labour with David Parker reportedly throwing his toys out of the cot over as the revenue minister and saying, I don't I don't want to be a minister anymore of that job, but I still want to be a minister of other, well, my other jobs, but I just don't want to do that one. Do you think that's con, that taxation and GST and all of these arguments they're having internally in Labour is starting to cause some, um, some splits in the thinking? Oh, I'm sure that must be the case. Uh, I must say I, I admired David Parker for taking the stand he did. Uh, he clearly doesn't agree with Hipkins on on some several tax issues, and agree or not with with Parker uh, resigning on a point of principle is something which we should expect to see more ministers do. Uh, they don't so resign I, I, at I, all, do they? Usually, pardon? They don't resign at all, let alone on a point of principle. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, yes, I I I think that. Parker clearly is unhappy with some of the decisions that Hipkins has made on tax and, and said, look, I can't hold the revenue portfolio in this, these, these circumstances. GST worries me because I have seen the mess that it was in Australia and up close and personal. And when you've got major political parties that are talking about horse trading on this and you've got then you know the likes of New Zealand First. But do you think in your gut that... Winston Peters in particular, is just using this policy as a as a playing card that can be traded uh, when it comes to coalition negotiations. And then he'll put his hand up and say, look, I really tried to do that. 
but guys, um, you know, National and Act weren't going to go along with um, making any reductions in GST. So sorry, I couldn't deliver on that. I think that's exactly what he's doing. He made it clear he cannot go with Labour, mm. so he would have to go with National Act. And it's just, uh, I think, inconceivable that National Act would would agree to that policy. <clears throat> well, yeah, I'd, I'd argue with you on that. I'd say it's very conceivable that National would do that, um, and it would only be the Act Party that would stop them doing that. Uh, well, I could see National agreeing conceivably to fruit and vegetables being exempt, even though they think it's, that's unlikely. But I think it's inconceivable that exempt all food, which I think is what New Zealand First would like to yeah. do. Yeah, yeah. That's a big chunk of revenue. Now, if they were to do that, they would have to either increase taxes somewhere else or persist in running a very large deficit, uh, which would mean higher interest rates and so on and so on. So I don't think National would be, even National would be silly enough to do that. Uh, I'm quite sure Act would not be. You spoke extensively with Roger Douglas back in the day when this was conceived. Do you think he conceived GST as a way, a, a gateway to bring in his broader views of a flat tax system uh, by, by stealth via consumption taxes? And yeah. if you do, if you do that, well, let's just discuss that. And because it looks like it to me, but you were more deeply involved in those discussions back then. Yeah, I was not deeply involved in the flat income tax. I, I chaired no. no fewer than four separate tax committees for Douglas. Yeah. Uh, but none of them dealt with the income tax structure, funnily enough. Uh, GST was one of them. Rural sector taxation was another one. In the old days, you could deduct all kinds of capital expenditure as a current expenditure for tax purposes. Yeah. Uh, so you got lots and lots of Queen Street farmers buying things like kiwi fruit orchards, et cetera. Uh, I was involved. I chaired that committee. I chaired one on uh, on superannuation and life insurance, and I chaired one on what was called the accrual tax treatment of income and expenditure, mm. an abstruse uh, uh, tax issue, which most people don't understand. Which I didn't understand when I said it either, uh, but I didn't get involved in Douglas's idea of a flat income tax. Uh, his His main concern was that uh, he wanted to keep income taxes at a moderate level. As you recall, he cut the top tax rate from 66 to 33, yep. corporate rate from 48 to 33, and he was very keen not to have to push them up. Uh, he was also aware of the fact that there was a lot of tax evasion. Mm. People were dodging tax, and he thought that a GST was very hard to dodge, and indeed it is. I think when Treasury originally estimated how many uh, GST-registered businesses there would be, I think they estimated it to be 120,000. Yeah. In the end, there were 180,000. Uh, there were just a lot more businesses with, that, than Treasury had understood. If you were wanting to do that, though, wouldn't having a kind of a flat tax like a GST in would be a, an interim step? And if you were going to do that, at what level would a GST need to be to remove the taxation, you know, tiers or bans that are currently in existence? I know it's a bit of a curveball and I'm putting you on the spot there, but 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 I'm picking that you are smart enough to have actually tried to work that out at some point. 
<laughs> unfortunately, I haven't. Uh, not not that smart, unfortunately, Cam. <laughs> but but I mean, you recall when Douglas first put that tax in, it was a ten percent. Correct. And it was raised to twelve point five percent by David Cagle after yep. Douglas was fired by David Longy, and of course it raised to fifteen percent by John Key. Yeah. Who, who instead, who um, in place of the increased GST, cut the income tax rates somewhat. I can't recall the details of that, but it was dropped the company tax rate and and um, changed a couple of things with the with the top tax rate. If yeah, I recall, that's right. The, the corporate rate went from thirty three to twenty twenty eight. Yeah, uh, I can't recall what was done on the income scale. Uh, it may be. Am I right in saying Helen Clark? Had increased the top tax rate, personal tax rate, to 30, 39. And he cut it back to 33. Yes. Uh, and cut the corporate rate, that's right. And and then put the GST from 12.5 to 15. Yeah. But but what, don't, I don't know the answer to your question about. You don't know the answer? No. <laughs> sorry about that. But I'd be interested. I'm interested to know what the level of GST would need to be to fully replace income tax. Uh, I've had various people ask me about that, and I've never been able to work it out. It would be very high, and so high, in fact, that the pressure to uh, try to evade it or avoid it in some way would become very strong. I think it would be up around 40%, maybe it'd be higher, very high anyway. So, yeah, so so if, it wouldn't be 25%. You'd think it would be for something like 40% on everything. I think, I think we're nearer 40 than 25 anyway, yeah. Wow. Income well, tax raises a lot of revenue. Yeah, exactly. But a lot of revenue from a small number of people too. It, some, that, that's the scary part. There's actually a very small base of taxpayers who are actually in a net tax-paying position. That's correct. Yeah. That, 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 I mean, there's just so many um, governmental distractions in ta- in the tax system. And I remember John Key campaigning in 2000 and before 2008 saying that um, working for families was communism by stealth. And, um, you know, and he, and he pledged to abolish working for families. But when he got in, he, you know, that, that tax credit system, which is skewing the, the, the tax system, something terribly. Yeah. Uh, he actually extended it. So, you know, it's very hard to believe any politician when it comes to tax because once they get in and start seeing where they can get revenue from, they seem to love taxes like no tomorrow. Yeah. You were perhaps an exception to that, <laughs> um, but that's probably uh, because you knew, you know, that there was better ways to do things. Yeah, I mean, essentially there are only three broad sources of, of tax, either on spending, which is GST, of course, and also, of course, excise taxes on, on alcohol, tobacco, yeah. and fuel. Uh, those are quite important sources of revenue too. Um, or taxes on income, uh, and you can define income in various ways to either include uh, what are called capital gains or not. Yeah. Or thirdly, um, taxes on assets, land taxes or or uh, inheritance taxes or wealth taxes, etc. There are really only three broad categories, and none of them are perfect by any means. But GST is probably the closest you can get. I think that's right because it's hard to avoid, um, and it's a, a, a fairly simple tax to apply 
for those who have to collect it. So GST is a very good tax. And I, I'm, um, funnily enough, when I was asked by Roger Douglas to chair the committee, I had had no experience in indirect taxation at all. Yeah. Uh, but uh, when I got into it, I could see the huge benefits of that uh, particular tax. And you recall when, when Labour introduced it, the National Party at the time under Jim Bolger, uh, Jim Bolger, yes, um, Jim Bolger, or maybe even Jim McClay. Uh, Would have been Jim McClay to start with. Yeah, that's right. We strongly opposed it and promised to scrap it. But in practice, of course, they didn't scrap it. No, they've extended it. <laughs> that's right. That's right. They're like mainlining that tax, those taxes straight into the into the coffers, don't they? Yeah. You, you, you touched on inheritance tax and wealth taxes and land taxes and things like that. This is what the Maori Party and, um, and the Greens have come out with uh, in their uh, in their policy mix, um, you know, I know we're well, always sort of talking about GST and that, but I think it's important that we look at it. In Australia, they have a capital gains tax. They also have stamp duty in the states as well, um, which is a, it's effectively a property tax. What's the evidence that that these capital gains taxes and stamp duties and things like that on property? Have for you know the claims that they make that it's going to make housing more affordable, uh, or um, it's going to even up the the playing field for people to access the property ladder. Uh, I think the idea that a capital gains tax would improve access to housing is a nonsense. As you say, Australia has a capital gains tax. Their housing is even slightly more expensive in Sydney and Melbourne anyway than that in Auckland. Um, so, in my view the unaffordability of housing doesn't have much to do with whether or not we have a capital gains tax. But uh, we know how to fix the housing market. Mm. Political parties and or local governments are just not willing to do it. I, I recall reading uh, an article in The Herald written by Ann Gibson, who's the property editor yeah. of The Herald. Yep. It would have been about a year, maybe 80 months ago. She looked at the average price of houses um, built in Auckland by the seven largest home builders. I think the cheapest homes were built by Williams Corporation. They were quite small apartment level things, 65 square metres. I think their average price was about 150000 Right. At the other end of the spectrum, uh, it was either Fletcher Building or or um, G.J. Gardner built 200 square metres uh, houses on average. And their average price I think it was 480. I think, wait a minute, wait a minute. Why 480,000? Isn't the average price of a house in Auckland above a million bucks? Well, yes, it is. The difference is the prices that Ann Gibson was quoting didn't include land. So it was just the, the physical building. That's right. Yeah. Now, if we if we had a physical building costing around 400,000, say, for a yeah. decent sized house, and we're paying 50,000 or 100,000 for the section, you'd have something like an affordable house. Yeah, but right now house prices in in New Zealand, major cities, Auckland certainly, Tauranga also where I am, outrageously pricey, and it's a direct consequence of local governments restricting the supply of land, and you've got this awful case right now where the Auckland Council has vetoed a housing development near Walkworth, uh, on fairly cheap land by definition about out in Walkworth. Yes. But they said, no, no, they don't want any further urban sprawl, which is the pejorative term they use for housing built on the fringe. 
But if you're paying, uh, just another example, um, Papakura, about the same time that Ann Gibson was writing her article, the Herald carried a small article, that small advertisement, for a 400-square-metre section in Papakura. Now, you and I know that Papakura is about 30K mm. from yep. the centre of town. That's right. Bare land, 400 square metres, priced for 970000 bucks. Wow. Now, you put a tent on that, and you still can't afford it. It's not yeah. the price of the housing. It's the price of the damn land. And it's not like New Zealand's short of land. We've got, you know, 5 million people spread across an area larger than the UK. It's outrageous. And then those artificial uh, boundaries that are created, the you know, the rural-urban boundary, the, the, these are all designed to ration land. And when you ration things, the prices goes up. But then you get an interesting situation start happening, and we've seen this in the debate in this election as well, where we've got some political parties that are talking about rent controls, which is another artificial construct that we see that's very popular in the United States, particularly in New York and places like that. Yep. Effectively creating a tax on landowners because you're not allowed to put your rents up. You can only charge a certain amount. Therefore, the, the what has to happen is the property values have to actually go higher to compensate the landlords for the lack of income that's coming from the rents and ex- exacerbates the problem. And there seems to be very scant evidence, if any evidence at all, that rent controls are successful in making housing affordable. But we seem to see these parties pushing these agendas around rent controls, and the real solution would be, like you say, to make more land available. Now, New York's a little bit difficult. It's constrained by a couple of rivers. There's not a lot of land outside of the main sort of centre, except out to, to Long Island, et cetera. But as you say, New Zealand doesn't have those constraints. Even in Auckland, we don't have those constraints. But so I, I look at Auckland north of the bridge mm-hmm. and drive from on the Northern Motorway from a Tia Valley Road exit to the Silverdale exit, 11K. And there's basically nothing there but, but scrub and trees and bush. And it's not like it's high-quality orchard land. It's almost certainly North Shore clay. And and uh, yet they, the council doesn't want to build on apparently. Like we we need to protect those clay fields, apparently. Sorry, we need to protect those clay fields. Yes, yeah, that's, that's exactly. Yeah, I know it's it's insane. But but what we're seeing here is a problem created by politicians usually, and then another solution which isn't not a solution being proposed by the same types of politicians that initially told us that we'd it'd be better if we didn't have urban sprawl and if we all lived in apartments um, and caught the train or walked, that'd be great. But there doesn't seem to be any reality-based uh, policy making here that says that, well, in Auckland, riding a bike with all the hills and everything is a little bit problematic. Uh, we've got this nasty thing in the middle of the city, which is called a harbour. Um, and then we've got a skinny little isthmus that's only about three kilometres wide at the narrowest point, and somehow we're going to have public transport all fit into that and transfer that, and there'll be no problems at all. Oh, and by the way, let's go and spend billions of dollars building a railway to the airport on a business case that says 
something. Yeah. It's a and, all of, and all of that expenditure leads to what? Increased yeah. taxes. That's right. <laughs> because we, we're not paying our way. Cam, ironically, the politician who was most clear on fixing this problem was actually Phil Twyford. Poor old Phil Twyford got lumped with building 100,000 Kiwi-built houses. But when Labour went into office in 2017 with New Zealand First, in their speech from the throne, it explicitly said, we will scrap the metropolitan urban limit around Auckland. Still there. Sorry? It's still there. That's right. Now, since that time, of course, Jacinda Ardern has promised explicitly not to scrap it. They've simply not only not not managed to achieve it, they've they've ruled it out. And that's what has to be done, unfortunately. Well, I thought the government's failed to do it. But this is the perennial problem or or triennial problem that we have. We have politicians that make grand plans, grand promise, even grander promises, like building a hundred thousand homes. Did I just can't believe that the Labour Party didn't have anybody sit there and say, well, actually, 100 grand, where'd you get that number from? Can we actually build that? Are there the builders to do it? Is there the land available to do it? Is there this available to do it? And where we are six years later, I don't think they've even cracked 2,000 houses, and even then they've used heroic assumptions to do it. When are we going to get some political parties that have got the stones to stand there and say, well, that's a dumb idea. That's never going to work. You're never going to be able to do that. What we actually can do is this. This is what the capacity in the economy is to do that. It's like saying you're going to build I mean, national policy they announced, announced on Tuesday, they're going to build these massive amounts of roads. Well, there's only about five roading com- companies in the whole country, and most of them are regional as well. And it seems like a scheme to enrich roading companies at huge expense of really short, small pieces of road. This is all just going to head to even more taxes, and we're not actually solving any problems. We're not even keeping ahead of the the growth of the population. And that's where I see GST being incredibly powerful because it actually powers the economy. That's where the revenue is coming from. Yeah. Do you think it's possible that these rapacious politicians might have another go at increasing GST? I don't. Well, uh, well, ACT will say no to that, surely. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know, of course. But uh, um, I think at the moment no political party has got a very effective, fully priced budget uh, making making their, their case for a, a tax reduction. I think ACT has made an attempt at it. They've said they'll cut A, B, and C and and, and scrap these government departments, most of which uh, have minimal value. I, I think they'll get quite a lot of public support for not having those departments. But uh, most political parties don't like saying the implications of what their tax policy would mean. Well, this is what scares me. And the reason why I raised that question is if you just have a look at uh, you know, value-added taxes or GSTs around the world, there's a lot of countries that have got um, GSTs that are exceeding 20%, a lot. Yeah, that's right. And, and, you know, our politicians are fond of quoting, you know, that we're, the average rate of, uh, of this in the OECD is that, and aren't we doing well because we're better than that? 
Uh, I could see uh, some, particularly from the parties on the left, them eyeing up the list of uh, countries that have got uh, value-added taxes in excess of 20% and saying, well, you know, we're an outlier. We need to get back in line with the OECD. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, what's the highest one? What's the do you know? What's the highest one that you know of? I'm just no, scrolling no, no. through a list here, and it's I've got 25 percent in Denmark, 24 percent in Finland, 24 percent in Greece. Hungary's got 27. That's the highest so far. Oh, right, my gosh, 27 percent in Hungary uh, is 18. Well, it's it's a multi-layered one, so 18 percent. On milk and dairy products, cereal, hotels, tickets, to outdoor music vendors, or five percent on pharmaceutical products. So it's, it seems like a dog's breakfast. Uh, Portugal's twenty-three. Uh, these are large numbers. Yes, they are. We're at fifteen, and we think that's horrendous. Yeah, uh, you know, I if if I was David Parker, I'd be eyeing up this list and finding an average that's above fifteen and trying to put that in. That's what scares yeah. me. Yeah. Yeah, though I think he's looking for something which would differentially impact high-income people, isn't he? Well, yes, he's, uh, a, he's, a, he's a nasty, bitter little socialist who um, has a jealousy streak, and anyone who's do, doing better than him, he wants uh, to see them whacked. So I, I'm I, I'm absolutely certain he would be an, uh, a hard you know, fan of capital gains taxes, wealth taxes, and those sorts of things. I think I think that's probably right. Funnily enough, he's one of the few Labour ministers for whom I have some some regard, and not only because he resigned his portfolio when he uh, fell out of line with with Hipkins. Mm. Way back in two thousand and three, when I was in Parliament, uh, Catherine Rich and I ran a petition for uh, a royal commission of inquiry into the conviction of Peter Ellis. Yes. You'll remember that case, I'm sure. It's an appalling case. An appalling case. And uh, we got all kinds of people signed that. Uh, I think people from every political party in Parliament, Winston Peters signed, Tim Simmons signed, uh, Judith Collins signed, uh, Chris Finlayson, not yet in Parliament, signed, etc. Only one guy in Labour signed, and that was David Parker. Right. And he felt so strongly about the issue that he sought approval from his caucus because, of course, Labour was in government at the time. Yeah. Now, the Select Committee said, no, no Royal Commission, but let's instead do what the British have done, set up a Criminal Cases Review Commission to look at any case where the public has a serious misgiving about the soundness of a conviction. Yeah. Labour did nothing. National did nothing in nine years. Labour put that Criminal Case Review Commission in place after the 27th election, 2017 election. Who was Attorney General? David Parker. Okay. Yeah, I've had, had. I mean, I've got a personal axe to grind with him. He, he smeared me all over Parliament one day. I mean, continues to do so. But um, people that I talk to across the political spectrum all have a, a huge respect for David Parker. Um, you've just, you're just another person that's confirmed that. So he has got a brain in there. Um, perhaps if he just, I don't know, tempered his his uh, his own. Uh, petulance and knee-jerk reactions to things, he might get better results. But um, there is a there does seem to be a huge amount of respect for him, and maybe I need to revisit my own personal view of him. 
<laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I don't really know the guy at all. I don't think I've actually met him apart from that one occasion when I collected a signature from him back in yeah. 2003. But uh, anyone who feels strongly enough to seek caucus approval to do something which the rest of the caucus don't agree with, yeah, uh, you have to have some respect for them. Well, and, and and people who stand up for their principles are few and far between in the parliament, aren't they? Yeah, sadly, that's true. Yeah. Uh, well, you know, I think we've had a, a pretty decent um, go at this GST. You, what you're saying, Don, is that leave it alone. Don't touch it. It's working perfectly. Absolutely. It's a very good tax. Uh, New Zealand has held up all over the world as having a clean, simple, straightforward GST, and uh, not many countries have had the courage politically to put such a, a tax in place. But for Pete's sake, don't give it away. Would you also say don't increase it as well? Uh, I, I, I think 15% is, is, uh, shouldn't be increased. I agree with that. Uh, on the other hand, the government, whichever party, has got a problem on its hands, running a large deficit. So they to cut back spending strongly or got to find more revenue from somewhere. And, uh, of course, my first preference would be cut back some of the unnecessary spending. But uh, uh, to the extent they still need more revenue, don't cut GST. Yeah, well, that, that's a whole other debate, isn't it, to talk about what could be cut from government spending. That would mean that we could actually drop GST down a bit. But the trouble with politicians is they love promising things, and those things cost money, and the only way you can get that money is taxes. So. Or is it uh, Margaret Thatcher famously said the problem with socialism is you eventually run out of other people's money to spend? <laughs> Cruel <laughs> words were never said. How true. Very yeah. good. Thank you very much, Don. I appreciate you coming on to the crunch to talk about GST. And uh, let's see how they go in the election with these promises. Very good. Good to talk to you, Cam. All the best. Thank you. This is the crunch with Cam Slater. Conversations with a side of controversy right here on RCR.